Hello and welcome to Airing Pain, the programme brought to you by Pain Concern, a UK charity that provides information and support for those of us who live with pain. Pain Concern was awarded first prize in the 2009 NAP Awards in Chronic Pain and with additional funding from the Big Lottery Fund's Awards for All programme and the Voluntary Action Fund Community Chest, this has enabled us to make these programmes. I'm Paul Evans and in this edition of Airing Pain... It's known as the worst pain known to man, sometimes known also as the suicide disease. It's a dreadful condition to suffer from and we do know of people who have committed suicide. Cannabis offers us a different way and we know that the mechanisms of which whereby cannabis works is different to the other, all the other medicines that we use. And therefore it gives us an al- potentially an alternative approach that either instead of the drugs they're using or maybe in combination with one or two that they will get improved relief of pain. Patients there were wearing little lapels with a picture of a molar tooth and I said, why are you wearing these? Oh, we're what are called the Lost Tooth Brigade. More on those stories later. But one of our aims on airing pain is to find answers to questions you've raised with us. One listener asks, my husband's experiencing discomfort in his pelvic region. He's too embarrassed to go and see his GP. So how can I persuade him to go and see a doctor about it? Answering this question is Dr Steve Gilbert, who's an anaesthetist and pain doctor working in Fife, Scotland. In your pelvis, there are lots of things that could be causing discomfort or pain. And I think that it's very important that your husband goes to see his doctor about this. Often, as you get older, there is some difficulty with passing urine. And usually this is just a harmless enlargement of the prostate which is a little gland that lies at the bottom of the bladder around about the tube that you pass urine through. So this is fine and something to be expected as you get older but very occasionally of course there's a chance of there being a growth there, something that you might need to get uh, checked out with a, a, a doctor, with a GP or with a specialist. Of course also your bowel runs through your pelvis and as you get older it's very important to look out for any change in the way that your bowel is working. If you find it difficult to pass bowel motions and especially if there's any blood in your bowel motions then you would need to go to see your doctor straight away to exclude any serious disease. So I would say that if this problem has started and he's carrying on getting symptoms but it's not just cleared up by itself then he should go and see his doctor and see whether there's an underlying cause for this. That was Dr Steve Gilbert. Urogenital pain can affect people in numerous ways because pain in the pelvic area, people get pain when they're walking, for example, when they're sitting, uh, when they're lying down, so it affects all aspects of movement. But they also get it because the pelvis is very important for for several functions. For example, you've got to be able to pass urine and faeces and have sex in the pelvis. And a lot of people can't maintain those things so that even going to the toilet is very difficult and also it can be very difficult in relationships if their sex life is, is affected. Natasha Curran is a consultant in anaesthesia and pain medicine at University College Hospital London and she specialises in urogenital or pelvic pain medicine. There can be numerous causes for people to have a pain in the urogenital which basically means the renal or genitals system or the pelvis. Um, people can have pain from infections or from previous 
uh, disease, such as, for example, many women have endometriosis, which causes pain in the pelvis operations or any other reason why people can get chronic pain so people often have chronic pain from the muscles which can be really underestimated and like any other chronic pain it's a pain which goes on for more than three to six months which makes it what we call chronic pain so it's an ongoing pain or persistent pain and it's not that dissimilar to people having conditions like chronic back pain but I think that most people think that or there's a perception in the public, perhaps, if a woman's got pelvic pain, that's something to do with, for example, like childbirth, or often people have thought of it being psychological causes, but there are really, really many, many reasons why people can have pelvic pain. A common presentation for me to see in man is a, a chronic prostate pain, for example. Now, a man may start off with prostatitis, so an infection in the prostate gland, and normally that's self-limiting, so that is, it goes away. It may be treated with antibiotics, which and men commonly go to the GP for, have it treated, and it disappears. And for most men, that's the story, as in for most you know, men or women having a bladder infection, cystitis. But unfortunately, for a small number of people, they may get a recurrence of the symptoms. So they experience the symptoms as if they're having the prostate infection. Although they haven't got an infection, they've got a chronic pain syndrome. Often I see people who are very happy to talk about their pain and say, oh, I've talked to everyone about this, I have I'm no embarrassment whatsoever. But I recognise that pain in the vagina or the testicles or the penis or the back passage is not something that people are able to necessarily talk about with their family, friends, whereas if they had back pain, for example, they might be more willing to share that. That sharing of information is only really done with medical professionals and it might be something that they're reticent to bring to their general practitioner or even you know, urologist or gynaecologist, uh, particularly if people don't ask about it. So one of the things that I do in my consultations is to very much... So at the beginning of the consultation, there'll be some questions I ask you, which may, may not be relevant, but if I know if I don't ask you, then sometimes it can be difficult to tell me about. So I ask people about their sexual relationships, um, because it, sometimes it might, it might be something that's very important to someone. I've got this pain in my vagina or my, or my penis, which, which is preventing me having sex with my partner. But if someone's not able to say that, that's why I ask them the questions. I think if someone's listening to this and they realise that they've got um, urogenital pain and it's been chronic, as in it's been there for longer than three or six months, I would suggest going to your general practitioner and you can be referred to a pain clinic. There are certain pain clinics which, who have specialists in urogenital pain, like us at University College London, but also there are people around the country that, that are becoming more um, proficient and are learning more and more about treating pain in this part of the body. Natasha Curran of University College Hospital in London. And you may be interested to know that the Bronchley's Pain and Fatigue Management Centre in Wales that we featured in an earlier edition of Airing Pain is running a two-week residential programme for female chronic pelvic pain and endometriosis in June 2011. That's this year. You're listening to Airing Pain with me, Paul Evans. Now, cannabis, its use and misuse, is a subject guaranteed to raise tabloid temperature, particularly when questions of its legality are raised. Cases that hit the headlines sometimes involve people with chronic pain being prosecuted for their use of what is essentially an illegal street drug. Dr William Notcutt is a consultant anaesthetist at the James Paget Hospital in Great Yarmouth. He specialises in pain medicine and has been researching into the use of cannabis-like medicines for about 15 years. Initially, this was on synthetic cannabinoids, but in 2000 the research was able to start using extracts of the actual cannabis plant. 
we know an awful lot about how it works, why it works, why it helps in multiple sclerosis. And as time has gone by, we've managed to find out and show the benefits that these cannabis extracts can have, particularly with multiple sclerosis and also with other pain problems as well. For a drug that's been around for about 5,000 years, you know, there are writings of it in, in ancient Chinese literature, but it has always been difficult to use because people did not have a standardized purified extract and they didn't know how to use it properly. But getting a license for cannabis as a medicine is a massive leap forward. So the drug Sativex became licensed for use in the UK in June 2010. But what pain conditions will it be used to treat? And whilst some people may be aware of the effects of taking illegal street cannabis, is this what medicinal users can expect? And in what form will it be taken? The initial conditions that the licence is going to be for is for the treatment of spasticity in multiple sclerosis. Now spasticity is a condition whereby the muscles go into spasm very tight and that, as one can imagine if you've ever had cramp, can be an excruciatingly painful uh, condition. Now this is the first area that it has been looked at but we also know that it's uh, valuable in other causes of pain with multiple sclerosis and I think in time the uh, license will be developed to, so that it can be used in other pain problems. Inevitably, with any drug, there are side effects, and every single drug that we use at the moment um, for treating pain has side effects, some of which can be lethal. Cannabis itself does have side effects, and in the controlled way we've been using with patients, these side effects can be minimised. The likely side effects that patients can get is feeling a little lightheaded or dizzy. It's certainly not the euphoria that people usually associate with the recreational use of cannabis. They don't go anywhere near that level of intake. And what we found is that at comparatively low doses of cannabis, the patients can get the therapeutic benefit. They get it at a low level, far below the level at which they would be expected to be high as they would do if they were using it recreationally. The traditional way of using cannabis has been to smoke it which is an effective way of delivering the drug, but it is very likely that in taking it, it gets into your body very quickly and can produce the high. The other way that cannabis is traditionally used is by eating it. It's often baked into cakes or or, or other food. The problem with that is that the absorption is much slower and much less reliable. And so it's much more difficult for a patient to get the dose exactly right. What has emerged from our research has been the use of the cannabis extract um, sprayed under the tongue. It's then absorbed by the lining of the mouth, and this gives a much more precise effect than if it were swallowed. As I alluded to earlier, the licensing of what was and is an illegal street recreational drug will always create a headline. Dr William Notcut again. I think for a long time there's going to be a controversy over cannabis, and maybe there always will be, you know, because although it does help a lot of patients, it doesn't help some patients at all. And there are problems with cannabis, and we know this. Uh, There's been a lot of press about the potential for um, psychosis with cannabis users. Um, And as time goes by, we've understood more about that, and it's probably a problem essentially in the very young particularly the adolescent users of cannabis and the response of the adolescent brain to cannabis. 
Older people who comprise almost all our patients, if they haven't had any significant psychiatric problems or even drug dependency problems, are very unlikely to develop any psychosis or dependency problems with cannabis. It's probably mainly uh, a problem of the very young and the recreational user who uses high doses. But there are several dangers for people who are buying it off the street, one of which is the quality of the material they're getting. They really don't know exactly how effective it's going to be. They don't know what the composition. Cannabis itself has a number of different elements to it. And what we know, for example, is that the two particular elements, when put together, make it much safer than a lot of the cannabis that's on the street at the moment, the so-called skunk and that type of cannabis. So someone getting it on the street, first of all, doesn't know the quality, uh, doesn't know the quantity. They don't know what it's mixed with, and it may be mixed with pesticides, heavy metals, fungi, bird droppings, um, all sorts of chemicals. You just don't know what it is there. Then they have the problem of administering it. How do they do it? How do they go? And, and then knowing how far to go, what the experience might be, is just a massive problem. So it's the same thing with, with drugs like heroin and other drugs you can get off the street. You just don't know what you're getting and you may be all right one day and another day you may be in real problems. I mean, I would like to see medicinal cannabis become another tool that we have for treating pain. In my mind, there's no doubt that this is going to prove a valuable addition to the drugs that we have at the moment. But there's a huge amount of work to be done on it. We've been working on morphine for 200 years and still studying it to this day. Well, you know, I might say there's 200 years of work to do on cannabis. Makes me shudder at the thought. But <laughs> No, but there is a lot of work to go on to this, to develop it, potentially develop it out into, not only into areas of pain, but uh, uh, possibly into many other areas of medical practice as well. Dr. William Notcutt. And at this point, I'll just remind you of our usual words of caution that whilst we believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. This is Airing Pain with me, Paul Evans. It's like being hit by a bolt of lightning or I would imagine that it's like having a taser gun aimed at your face. It just knocks you off your feet when it, when it happens. There's nothing you can do. You can't function, you can't speak, you can't think. Trigeminal neuralgia is a relatively rare condition that affects four or five people out of every 100,000 each year in the UK. Yet to those unfortunate enough to have it, it can be devastating. Professor Joanna Jakszewska is the facial pain lead at University College London Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust and she works at the Eastman Dental Hospital. It's a facial pain on one side of the face which results in sharp shooting pains that last for seconds but are of great severity and then you may get many of these provoked particularly by light touch activities such as washing your face, shaving, brushing your teeth, eating and it really stops you dead in your tracks and you can get multiple attacks every day and then suddenly it could disappear for weeks or months but gradually it tends to keep recurring and the attacks get longer and the pain gets more severe with time. When it first happens, it's a bolt out of the blue and you recover from it quite quickly, but the shock is 
astronomical. It really is very frightening. And what tends to happen, it's a progressive condition, unfortunately, and these attacks become more regular and can happen in a volley of attacks. So you can get this sort of zap, zap, zap sensation in your face, uh, which just renders you incapable of doing anything. And the fear of the next attack is what most of our members say is one of the worst things. Uh, it's like torture, and you know you're going to be tortured again. That was Jilly Abbott, chairman of the Trigeminal Neuralgia Association UK. Nikki Jones, now in her late 30s, has had the condition for eight years. It started out of the blue. Um, I was sitting watching television. It was as if somebody put a cattle prod to the side of my head. Just whack. This immense, electrical, intensely painful pain. And I literally hit the floor. Whack. And it's never stopped. Patients very often think when they get their first attack of pain that it's a dental condition because it tends to be in the lower part of the face. And so the general perception is if it hurts around my face because it can start to hurt inside the mouth, the general idea is, oh, it must be a toothache. So patients will go to their dentist and the dentist, of course, being very mechanically trained, will look for a dental cause, may find a tooth that looks a bit suspicious and start some dental treatment. And neurosurgeons claim that up to 60% of patients will have had some dental treatment done before the penny drops. And some of these patients will have even their teeth taken out or root canal treatment. And I must say, when I went to the first trigeminal neuralgia support group meeting in the US, patients there were wearing little lapels with a picture of a molar tooth. And I said, why are you wearing these? Oh, we're what are called the lost tooth brigade. The problem with trying to make the diagnosis is that the diagnosis relies on history alone. There's no easy test like for diabetes where you can do a blood test and show, oh, this is a blood glucose. So it's a matter of sitting down very carefully and piecing out the timing of the pain, how the pain, the character of the pain, and listening to the words patients use because they'll often use the word, it's like an electric shock, lightning going through my face, which also gives that feeling of rapidity, severity of the pain, and the fact that this is a sharp pain rather than a dull, achy pain, which is what a lot of toothaches are like. You're listening to Airing Pain with me, Paul Evans, and we're talking about trigeminal neuralgia. Professor Joanna Zakshevska of the Eastman Dental Hospital. Trigeminal neuralgia in the majority of cases is thought to be caused by pressure of a vessel on the nerve right inside the brain. Just as the nerve enters the brain, there's a weak point where the myelin changes and pressure of a big vessel on there causes the myelin, that is the insulation of nerves, to disappear so that suddenly you can get crosstalk between light touch fibres and pain fibres because normally they're insulated from each other like a wire is insulated uh, from itself. And in some rare cases, it can be due to multiple sclerosis or it can be due to a tumour sitting in that part of uh, the nerve or on that nerve. So that's why these patients need to have some scans or an MRI scan to exclude those much rarer causes. But in the majority of cases, it's this vessel. So can it be treated? Jilly Abbott of the Trigeminal Neuralgia Association UK. TN is treated primarily with um, anti-epileptic or anti-convulsant drugs. Uh, it is a forever treatment and 
Anti-epileptic drugs or anticonvulsant drugs are not something you can take as and when you get the pain. You have to take them regularly for the dosage to build up in your bloodstream. And we do get situations where the side effects become intolerable and patients find that they just can't cope on the level of drugs that they're having to take to try and control the pain. Carbamazepine completely knocked me for six. I couldn't function on it at all. I couldn't walk, anything like that. Didn't know any better, so I didn't persevere with it. He then put me on uh, gabapentin, which seemed to slow the pain down. And I struggled with it, and I was on stupidly high doses, and I couldn't work. Um, I couldn't feel my fingers and my toes, and I stuttered a lot and couldn't find any words. You know, it, it really had an impact on my mental capabilities as well as my physical. Virtually all of these drugs will give severe side effects. And then we move on to surgical treatments. In a way, the best surgical treatment is to address the cause, that is, the nerve being compressed by a vessel. But this is a major procedure called a microvascular decompression, and not everybody will want to have a major surgical procedure that has a mortality rate associated with it, which is fairly low, as low as for any operation, but is always there given that this is not a disease that results in death. But that will give the best results in terms of 70% of patients can expect to be pain-free up to 10 years. That's as long as the data we have. If patients aren't fit enough for this, then we have to think about destroying the nerve slightly lower down in the passageway of the nerve. And this is by, very crudely put, by cooking it, putting glycerol around it, neurotoxic drug, or even by compressing it. But all of these result in destruction of the nerve and therefore patients are likely to have a sensory loss, like a dental injection. And it can vary anything from the real full deadness that you get with a dental injection to the one that's coming through with light touch or pins and needle type feeling. And about 60% of patients will complain that that's an unpleasant sensation. And that gives pain relief on average for about four years and then it needs repeating again. So you've got to toss up your different decisions about which operation you have, which can be very difficult for patients to make that decision, whether they go for medical, surgical treatment, and then of the surgical treatments, which of the surgical treatments they choose. And that's very difficult. At that point, I went on the internet and I found the Trigeminal Neuralgia Association and I rang their helpline and got a lot of information that I hadn't got from anywhere else a lot of support, a lot of emotional support. And they gave me a consultant surgeon's name, so I went to see him. And he said, looked at my bad MRIs and said, you've got a massive compression on your nerve root. So a blood vessel is compressing the nerve as it comes out of the brainstem. So he said he'd operate. Massive artery pressing on my nerve root. So he patted it all up and... I woke up and I was pretty much pain-free, and it was great. And I came back home to recover post-operatively, and the pain still seemed to have gone. I returned to work and was made redundant. So I then immediately just went to another job. But I'd only been there about three weeks, and uh, the pain suddenly came back. The nerve tries to regenerate and reform the myelin, and this is why you get periods of pain remission, because the body's successful in recoating these nerve fibres. But if that fails, then the pain continues. The pain gets so bad 
the constant pain and and you see when the constant pain's bad the stabbing pain joins the party it can get intolerable mr simpson my consultant says i should go to hospital and get ketamine at this point but i can't even move there's no way i can drive or be driven half an hour to the nearest hospital who would then spend three hours trying to figure out what to do so i dose myself up with my opioids that i have here and try and just go through it the longest one of those bad things has lasted was just over 24 hours usually after eight hours or so it, it does lessen enough that i can start to sleep and do you know what triggers that with you a major trigger is activity and that means doing anything other than going for a very short walk in the morning and sitting in my chair all day I mean, I get instant pain. If I touch one of the trigger points on my face, I will get instant pain. Whack. But if I do that too much the next day, it's like the, the nerve just has a complete breakdown, just has a party, a very bad party. It's known as the worst pain known to man, sometimes known also as the suicide disease. Uh, and because of this terror of going outside, of talking, eating, laughing, smiling, you become very isolated, you become very low, very depressed. Several patients become very, very emaciated because they find they can't eat. Some can't even drink and they end up being taken to hospital because they're dehydrated. It's a dreadful condition to suffer from and we do know of people who have committed suicide. Jilly Abbott, Chairman of the Trigeminal Neuralgia Association UK. The most important thing I would advise anybody with this condition is to join the association and the support that they get will be invaluable. There is information on the internet, a lot of which is incorrect, but all the information that we give out is checked by our professionals, uh, by our medical advisory board and by our medical advisor, Professor Joanna Zakshevska. So it is correct. So they're getting up-to-date, correct information as well as help and guidance. Oh, the TNA was an absolute lifesaver to me. I don't know what I'd have done without it. I mean, to me, it was the intense relief of finding somebody who had the condition who could understand made a massive difference it made the difference and that's why I volunteer on the helpline that's why I do what I can even when it hurts like hell to do it because there are other people out there hurting as well and other people who need to know that they're not alone and that other people understand what sort of people get in touch with you it's a massive range of people um, we get carers who are worried about their relatives and think that the relatives haven't got enough information or aren't being treated properly or just want information. We get sufferers who are suicidal, who've had enough of this and can't go on and are just crying out for help. We get people who just need information about possible treatment options. It's a range. I've even had somebody email in asking for help for a horse who had the condition, which was interesting there is a theme through them in my opinion that gps don't treat this well that they don't know enough about the situation they stick the if they recognize it they'll stick the patient on carbamazepine and if that doesn't work they're at a loss i'd prefer to see people who aren't treated easily by carbamazepine being sent straight to see a neurologist 
not to let these people continue suffering because that seems to happen a lot and people get desperate and that's why the TNA is there. That's our important role is to stop people feeling so desperate and allow them to get the information they need. My thanks to Nikki Jones, who went through an awful lot to pass on her message about the Trigeminal Neuralgia Association UK to others with the condition. Their website is tna.org.uk. That's TNA stands for Trigeminal Neuralgia Association.org.uk. Please do pay it a visit. Now, before we finish, I'd just like to say that if you or someone you know has benefited from listening to these programmes and want them to continue, then please consider making a donation to secure Airing Pain's future. It's very easy to do. Just go to our website at painconcern.org.uk where you'll find a Make Donation button. You can also download all the past editions from there and if you'd like to put a question to our panel of experts or just make a comment about the programme, then please do so via our blog, message board, email, Facebook, Twitter or even pen and paper, in which case you'll need the address and that is Pain Concern, 1 Civic Square, Tranent, EH33 1LH. I'll leave you with Nicky Jones. I've come to your home today. You're wrapped up sitting down in your chair, staring out the window, basically. You're sucking your lollipop. What's the lollipop? It's fentanyl, a strong opioid. So you're having to do that to talk to me. Yes. How is you talking to me going to affect you tomorrow? Just the action of talking triggers the pain. It's, um, you know, the nerve nerve endings in my mouth, the roof of my mouth and my tongue. It's like they get used and the nerve just misinterprets those signals as, as intense pain. And since we've been talking, we've had to stop twice. It's pretty bad at the moment and is triggering off in my mouth and the roof of my mouth at the moment. Right, I think we ought to stop. Then. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. <laughs>